missions trip, you got to see Pastor Sherry for deposits. It's got to be today. So, or have a chat with her. So if you're going to Argentina in Uruguay with us, yes, uh, see um, Pastor Sherry. She'll hook you up with all that information. Uh, so yeah, really grateful to be here. You guys are here, lovely people, grateful for you. You've chosen to honor God, and it's a beautiful thing. Anybody want to learn their Bible? Yes? So like my wheelhouse is Bible exposition, so I'm going to expound upon the scriptures for you today. I want to welcome everyone watching us by live stream. I want to encourage everybody to share the stream. So I'm going to read you a passage of scripture, and then we're going to break it down. Break it down. Everybody say it with me. Break it down. That's right. So here we are, we're in John chapter 10, and the final part of the, uh, the, the, uh, the chapter. In John chapter 10, starting in verse 22, I'm going to read all the way through uh, verse 30-something. It says, At that time the feast of the dedication took place in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so there were Jews who gathered around him, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Then tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them and said to you, I have already told you, and yet you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Everybody say, never perish. Aren't you glad? Eternal life in Jesus' name. Come on. And they will never perish. And, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me, he's greater than everyone. And I and, that, I and the Father, we are one. Then the Jews picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, I have shown you many good works from my Father. For which of these works are you going to stone me? And the Jews said, it is not for the good works that you do that we stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them and said, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And if he called them gods who were, to whom the word of God came, and the scriptures cannot be broken, do you say to him whom the Father has consecrated and sent forth into the world that I am blaspheming, because I said I am the Son of God, I am the anointed? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the deeds that I do, that you may know and understand that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And then again, they sought to kill him, but Jesus left. So Jesus is at the Feast of Hanukkah. Half this, like a lot of pastors like to skip things in the Bible. I don't like to skip things personally. I don't think you need to be protected from your scriptures, you know. So there's some controversial stuff here, which I hope, God willing, I'm going to be able to deal with, but really powerful things in here. So Jesus is at a feast, and this is a feast called Dedication. It's a feast, that's called, we would know it as Hanukkah. Anybody ever heard of Hanukkah before? Yeah. yeah, okay. So it's in the wintertime. Jesus is going to this feast. This feast is not in the Bible, but it is a feast that the Jews ordained. The Jews, God gave them seven feasts in the book of Leviticus. And the Jews added two feasts to the seven that God gave. And so while this is, well, I don't even get into that because that's going to take me down the other way. But God gave seven feasts in the, it's going to, like, I'm going to go way out there if I start going that way. God gave them seven feasts and the, the Jews added, they added Purim when they had a victory. Um, that's all based on the book of Esther when God delivered the nation 
from destruction in the book of Esther. They added a feast to their calendar called Purim. When God delivered them from the oppression of the Assyrians, in the, it's called the intertestament period. There's about 500 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. There was no prophetic word. And God told them, I'll give you a famine. Your famine has come into you, and it's not a famine for bread or for water. There will be a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. Because the people had rejected his word so often, they had rejected his prophetic voice. God said, okay, you don't value my prophetic voice? Then let's see what life is like without it. And 500 years of, of silence. And there's a lot of history that took place in the intertestament period. And so what happens, God coming out of the intertestament period, Malachi was the, uh, the, the, the excuse me, the book closes, scripture closes, <clears throat> and then it reopens in the, in, in the New Testament with a voice shouting in the wilderness. Right? We believe in shouting here at Elevate Miami Church because Jesus shouts. He shouts. You know how many times he shouts? He does hallels. He's, when he comes again and he rips the sky, he's going to shout. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a shout. We all think he's coming with a whimper. He's not coming with a whimper. He's coming with a shout. Yeah? So he, this is what's going on. And so they, 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 the in the intertestament period, the 400 years, God opens up the New Testament with a shout, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Hmm? Oh, so much, so rich. Book of Matthew, 40th, 40th book, book of visitation, visitation of the king. All the thing that's the whole theme of Matthew is the king has come, the king has come, the king has come, the king has come. Because 39 and 40 is the prophetic number of visitation. So, boom. Right? Yeah. Jesus actually rebuked them. He said, you discern, the si you discern the signs of the skies, but you cannot discern the time of your visitation. He actually says that to them. You don't understand. You've lost script. So they, they added, so during the intertestament period, there was about 400 years, four to 500 years, roughly. No one can actually agree on it, so we all round it off. So it's between four and 500 years between the, the time that the Old Testament closed and the prophetic voice stopped to the opening up of the New Testament, and all of these things began to happen. In that time, uh, the, there, there's, some, there's a lot of history that took place. Anybody want to learn history? Anybody want to know their Bible? Yes? Okay. All I need is one or two, and we're going to go for this. We want, I want you to be biblically literate. Biblically literate is important, is it not? And so in this intertestament period, this was, I was just trying to figure out what my notes went. We had a rise. Anybody ever heard of Alexander the Great? Yeah. Heard of that guy? So during the intertestament period, actually God prophesied this in the book of Daniel, that the, the, the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece was going to come. And God actually told them that there's going to be a prophetic sequence of national powers. And that they were under Persia when God gave the word to Daniel, but that the prince of, the prince of Greece was going to come. When Alexander actually invaded uh, Israel, the Jews willingly surrendered to him. And they went out and they showed him, uh, they, showed them the script, they showed Alexander the scriptures about his coming. And so the priests were able to tell the people, look, this is God's will. This has been prophesied. We are to yield to this guy. And Alexander took it as a great honor, and he honored the God of Israel, and he, never, he did not impose Hellenistic law over the Jews. He allowed them the freedom of worship because he's like, now these people got a God, you know. And so they, he allowed that. And everywhere Alexander went, he put down Hellenistic law, which was Greek law, but in Israel he didn't do that. And so what happens, Alexander the Great comes to power. He conquers this massive amount of regions. You can throw the map up. I just want to get you guys up to speed. And I want you to show you, because this everything that's going on here in this chapter with what God is talking about relates to something that came out of this period. This was Alexander's empire, right? When Alexander died, he had four generals. This, again, is prophesied in the book of Daniel. 
right? The goat, four horns, boom, the whole nine. I'm not going to get into that. But when Alexander died, he had four generals. He had one guy called, say with me, you guys are going to speak some Greek this morning. Seleucius, Ptolemy, Lysimachus, and Cassander. Those are his four generals. And so when Alexander died, he divided his empire up between the four generals. Seleucius got all of this, right? Ptolemy took Egypt. Cassander went back to Macedonia and Greece, his hometown. And then Lysimachus took Asia Minor. And so the kingdom was divided up into four different regions. And there was generations of dynastic war. So these guys, they didn't get along too well. How many knows when there's power and money involved that then there's going to be a lot of disputes? Chaos. Right, chaos, thank you. Right, this is what people fight over. They fight over power and they fight over money. And so here we have power and money on the table. And these four generals that used to fight together, now they're fighting each other. So one of the things that happened, this guy Seleucius makes a covenant with Cassander to get rid of Lysimachus. And so Seleucius and, and Cassander uh, take out Lysimachus. And then so now Cassander now rules Asia Minor. In exchange, in exchange, Seleucius asked Cassander to support him in his war against Egypt. And so... Ptolemy, being isolated down in the south, he began to make covenants with Rome. Get the picture? This is how Rome came into the region, was because Ptolemy started making military alliances with Rome to protect himself against Seleucus and Cassander. And this went on for generations. So even after they died, their sons continued to fight these wars, of these territorial wars. And eventually, a guy named um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Seleucian king, marched down to invade Ptolemy's kingdom in the south, which is Egypt. He got beat. Anybody want to tell me what's between here and here? Is there's a nation in between? Anybody want to tell me what nation that is? Anybody know? Come on, shout it out. Starts with an I, ends with an L. Israel. So as these two guys were fighting, they're, they're, it's like, you know, like your kids are fighting in between the kitchen, you know, they're, they're just going back and forth through the, you know, you know what I mean? It's like they, every time these guys fought, they would fight, they would cross, have to cross through the territory of Israel. And so Israel was just being trampled by armies during this season. And so Antiochus Epiphanes comes down into Egypt, into Ptolemy's kingdom, and he gets his butt kicked. And so he's on his way back north. And as he's on his way back north, he starts exerting control over the Jewish people. He, it was already under his territory, but he starts getting really ticked off, and he removes all of their worship rites that had been in place since the time of Alexander. And so he strips them of worship. He imposes Hellenistic law. He commands them to dress like Greeks. He commands that the Greek gods be put up all around Israel. He goes to the temple itself, sets up the god Zeus, and sacrifices a pig on the Jewish altar. Well, that didn't go over too well, right? And so a sect of Jewish zealots came together, Hasumians is what they were called. Some of you, if you know any of this history, it's called the Maccabean Revolt. And so a family, a family of priests came together, a Hasumian line, it's called the Hasumian Dynasty. The Hasumians came together and their, and their grandson, the guy Hasumian's grandson, whose last name was Maccabee, Matthew the Maccabee, Matthias the Hammer is what they called him. And so Matthew, the grandson of the Hasumian, he formed a Jewish revolt, went on for about 60 years roughly, so the Jews revolted against the Seleucians, which some, which, you know, you, some of you, if you're familiar with it, you might know it as the Assyrians, but it's better to understand it as the Seleucians because the Assyrians were before this period of time. 
And even though, the, the, even though Seleucus was in charge of the former Assyrian Empire, it's not the original Assyrian Empire that you find in the Book of Kings and in the Book of um, Chronicles. It's a different empire entirely. And so this, this guy torches a pig on the altar, leads to a massive revolt, and in this massive revolt, they actually throw out the Seleucians. They throw them out. And once they overcame them, amazing, and when they overcame the Seleucians and threw them out of Israel, they rededicated the temple. And when they went in to rededicate the temple, they cleansed the temple, they cleansed the altar. They literally, well, first they cleansed the nation, then they cleansed the temple and they cleansed the altar and they rededicated the altar and the temple. And this is where the feast of dedication comes from. It comes from this victory that happened uh, happened in this time period. Something else happens here that's very important. Uh, there's a religious sect, one of the Hasameans, I think Hyman, Hymus, Hymus, some, some weird name, some dude. He, he formed a sect during this time, and this is important because these are the people that Jesus is speaking to specifically in this chapter. So it's important to understand who he's talking to, and it's also important to understand where they came from. During this time period, the Hasameans throw out the Seleucians, and they start their own dynastic reign they didn't put David on the throne. They put themselves on the throne. They were not heirs of the Davidic line. They had no legal right in God's eyes to be king, right? So the Hasameans come in line, and they form a sect out of the Hasameans called the Sadducees. Anybody ever heard of the Sadducees? No? No one's ever heard of Sadducees. So there, there was a lot of sectarian in Jewish, in Jewish history. You had Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and then uh, you had Herodians. Those are the ones the Bible mentions. There was a few others, but those were your dominant parties. The Pharisees believed in eternal life. They believed in, in repentance. They believed in a Messiah. They believed in resurrection. And the Pharisees believed in the supernatural world. The Sadducees believed none of that. They didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. They didn't believe, it sounds like some of our pastors these days, they didn't believe in a supernatural world. They didn't believe in angels. And they completely discounted the book of Isaiah. They, om who said what? They omitted the book of Isaiah. So when you see what Jesus is doing here, it's mind-blowing, mind-blowing. They omitted the book of Isaiah because Isaiah's, they call him the evangelist of the Old Testament. Nobody speaks clear about Jesus but, except Isaiah. And so they didn't want any of that. These Hasameans formed the sect called the Sadducees. The Sadducees, all they wanted was political power. That was really it. And it wasn't really political power so that they could make the nation better. There's a difference. When you want political power to make the nation better, that's a good thing. You know what I'm saying? Can we all agree on that? That's a good thing. Political power to make everybody else's lives better, that's a good thing. When you, make, when you want political power just to make sure that you're, that you're getting paid, right? Which is like, we look at Congress and we see that. We look at a lot of aspects of our own government. They're not out to make your lives better. They're out to make their lives better. You get me? That's what these guys were. They weren't out to make anybody's life better except their own. And so they became tributaries to whoever would pay them the most. And so these Hasameans are there and they perform these Sadducees. They don't believe in resurrection. I want to make sure I cover everything. I know most of this. I know everything that they do. I just want to make sure I say it. Um, they, they didn't believe in resurrection. They didn't believe in the Messiah. They believed in the Messiah. They would be what we would consider in our culture called deists. And a deist believes that God exists, but that he doesn't care. God exists, but he's not concerned with the affairs of people. That's a deist view. They also believe that when you die, it's over. You're just dead. There's no afterlife. It's just over. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, gimme, 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 my name is Jimmy, need to get as much as I can out of this life and just move on. That's basically their, their mentality and their viewpoint. 
And so Jesus is at this feast of dedication. It celebrated the nation's, uh, the nation's founding. It found, celebrated the nation's freedom from the Seleucids, and it celebrated the founding of the Sadducee sect. So the Sadducees play a very dominant role in the book, in the feast of dedication. This is like their feast, right? This is like their, uh, what's that Christmas Eve? You, the Cubans do a, a Christmas Eve called what was it? Noche. Yeah, there we go. I knew somebody was going to help me out with that. This was their Noche Buena, right? This was their special thing for them that they did that kind of identified them for what they were, right? This was their, th this Feast of Dedication. So they're the prominent actors in the Feast of Dedication because this is where their whole sect came from. And they come to Jesus and they say, tell us plainly. Just tell us, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? And now the problem with them telling him he's the Messiah is they probably half-heartedly believed that. Jesus had, he, these are people that he barely talked to. If you look at the New Testament, of all of the religious leaders, most of his conversations are with Pharisees. And what he's trying to do is correct their thinking. With the Sadducees, he barely spoke to them. And his, one of his harshest rebukes was upon the Pharisees. And he said, you are ignorant of the word of God and of the power of God. Now, that tells us two things. Well, not only about them, it tells us they didn't care about the word and they didn't care about the power. But it tells us two other things. It tells us that we are to care about the word of God, and we are to care about the power of God. You understand? It's not word without power. It's not power without word. Amen. Those things matter to the Lord, and he held them accountable to know these things. Isn't that interesting? It's one of the most fascinating things I find when I study the scriptures is how much accountability Jesus had for the people. Do you not know this? Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? You've got to be kidding me. That's what he told Nicodemus. You're teaching my people and you don't understand this. Right? To the Jew, to the Pharisaical, to Pharisees and the rulers, what did he say? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read? He constantly was calling them out on his expectation for them to know the scriptures. He was calling them out on his expectation for them to not only know the scriptures, but to understand his power and his kingdom. He calls them out all the time. And if that was his expectation of his people then, what is his expectation? Is his expectation any less now that we not know his word and that we not understand his power and that we not understand his kingdom? His expectation is that we know and we understand these things. He looked at his disciples, and they'd been with him three years, and he's on a boat. Imagine this. I want you to put yourself in a position, and I want you to have Jesus look right at you and have him say these words. Have I been with you this long, and you're still so dull? Huh? Can you imagine that? You know, what does it tell you? He expected them to understand. He had, some of you, it's like, you've been saved six years, and you're still here? This is, the, this is the spiritual place you've grown to? Here? Come on, man. Rise to the level of your purpose. Have I walked with you this long, and you're still so dull? Have, you, have I walked with you this long, and fear still dominates your life? Have I walked with you this long, and you still don't get it? Have I walked with you this long, and you still don't understand how to honor me? You still don't understand the things that are important to me? You still, have I walked with you this long and you still think it's all about you? After all this time, you still think all of this is about you. Imagine that. But yet that's Jesus. That's not the fairy Jesus that this culture speaks. We preach fairy Jesus. I preach King Jesus. Okay? I preach the loving God, the loving Father who loves you, adores you on your worst day. He is always in your corner and will support you and encourage you and uplift you in every way. I preach that. But I also speak a king. 
because we're part of a kingdom. We're part of his kingdom, not my kingdom, not your kingdom, his kingdom. So I want to understand the king. What does the king want? So Jesus had an expectation. He tells these Pharisees as he's in this temple court, he says he's going to start the lines that he's throwing. He's throwing lines at them that they would have understood exactly what he was saying. They would have understood the implications of his words very, very clearly. It's hard for us because we don't, that's why I'm trying to give you a little bit of a cultural background so that you can understand the impact that he's having when he says these things to these guys and why they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him for a lot of reasons. They just couldn't find a reason. They thought, well, he's saying to be God, we can kill him for that. But they probably wanted to kill him for every place in, the, in, in every word that he said that they didn't agree with. Hmm? A lot of us, what we do is we dumb, our the- we dumb God down to the level of our understanding. What God expects from us, what the Lord expects from us, he expects us to elevate our understanding to the level that he is. We dumb Jesus down to the point of understanding. And that's okay if you don't know Christ. It should, the cookie should be on the lower shelf. But eventually, we need to get off of milk and start eating meat, and we need to rise to a higher level and understand God from the point where he is. Right? Does this make sense? Yeah. And so he's telling these Pharisees, he said, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. What he told the Pharisees, the Sadducees, what he told the Pharisees a few chapters back is he told them, he says, you know why you don't believe in me? He told them, because my word finds no place in your heart. That's why you don't believe in me. Because no matter what I say, your, my word finds no place in your heart. You have a choice, Christian. Every human being on this planet has a choice. You can believe and receive or you can deny and reject. The choice is yours. God does not govern your heart. You do. Your heart is yours to keep or it's yours to give away. And the Lord never takes it from you, but he asks for it because he gives his to you and he's asking you to give yours to him. And these people, and there are people in this world that they find no place. Doesn't matter how much truth is preached. Doesn't matter how much revelation. Doesn't matter how much, how much revelation is given to, this, to, the, to, to some people that the word finds no place in their heart. You're here this morning because the word finds place in your heart. You wouldn't be here if, the word, if, you, if, if, if you weren't here for that reason. Amen. You're here because God's word finds place in your heart. And because God's word finds place in your heart, that's an act of honor. And honor creates Exactly, exactly. And so God will give you more. Mankind has a choice. And Jesus says, now watch this. So here you are a Pharisee, and Jesus says, these are my people. They hear my voice. They understand my heart. They come to me, and I give them eternal life. Now he's saying this to a group of people who don't believe in eternal life. They don't believe in it. They believe when you're dead, you're dead. You get ashes to ashes, dust to dust. You're just dead, dude. It's all over humanistic in their view. And Jesus is affirming the afterlife. Christian, we live forever. Aren't you glad? Can we raise a hallelujah? You live forever. Forever. Come on. And he's he's affirming it to these (laughs) non-believers. It's crazy. He says, I give them eternal, he's like eternal life, you know. He just drops it and just watches them. You guys know about eternal life, the thing you don't, you think you deny. And he says, and no one will take them out of my hand. In other words, I have the authority. I have the power. Salvation is mine to give. And I have the sustaining and the holding power over everyone who gives their life to me. 
The Lord is able to sustain you. If you've given your life to the Lord and you belong to him, he will keep you. He will keep you. It's not a matter of externals. It's a matter of internals. Christ is in you. Your externals are, are contradicted and conflicted because you're making choices against what is in you. You need to make choices in alignment with the spirit of God that is in you and not the world around you and the voices around you and all of that. And that's another day. The first thing he confronts with their, with their belief system is eternal life. <laughs> then he says, oh, yeah, by the way, <laughs> my father has given them to me, and he's greater than anybody. And if the eternal life thing bothers you, well, then, you know, my father, God, they didn't have a problem with that. Yeah, we believe in the supreme God, the master of the universe. We get that. But he says to them, I and my father are one. That's the second thing he does. And they were like, what? Because they didn't believe in the plurality of the Godhead. The plurality of the Godhead during this period of time, in other words, Father, Son, and Spirit, they believed in the powers of heaven, and they believed that God was, they believed that, they knew that there was a monoganosh. They knew that there was, a, there, was an imperson, there was an embodied Yahweh. They knew, the, they, knew the, they knew the God Yahweh, and they knew there was an embodied Yahweh. They knew that, and they also had a discernment of the Spirit. So they believed that God was a plurality. They just didn't understand how he was. They believed in the Trinity. The Trinity is not some new concept coming out of the New Testament. It's Old Testament. Second temple, they got rid of all that doctrine because that doctrine supports Jesus, right? And because the doctrine supports Jesus, well, we can't have that. So they just got rid of it, conveniently excusing it away. And so the Pharisees understood this. You had the monogonos. You have the, you have the angel of the Lord, Jesus himself in person and personified before the walls of Jericho. Jesus himself is the man in the burning bush. There's a man in the burning bush. I always tell people that, right? Go back, Moses before the burning bush. No, Moses before the man in the burning bush. There was a man in the burning bush, right? Jesus is the man in the burning bush, right? He's the monogonosh. He's the one and only. He's the one the Father speaks, and he says, I will send my angel before you when he's leading them out of Egypt. I will send my angel before you, not angel of the Lord, representative of Jesus. He's speaking of Jesus, and he says, you will listen to him, for my name is in him. If you obey him, he will forgive you, but if you deny him, he will hold you accountable for your sins, he says that to Moses. Well, who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. And so the Jews, this is, all, this is all researchable stuff. They believed in a concept called the twin powers of heaven or the two powers of heaven. And they threw it out in the second temple, which is the period these guys are in. They're in the second temple. And so the, the Sadducees are saying, there's only one God. There's not multiple things. There's only one God. And Jesus says, there is only one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Ehad, one. That's what he's saying. Father and I are one. Does that blow your mind? We're two separate people. We, we're one. Right? Does that, does that freak you out? It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Well, there's, you know, hear Israel. Here, listen to something special. Hey, guys, come here. Listen in. I'm going to tell you something secret. And you're going to say this three times a day. Every day for the rest of your life, you're going to say this statement three times a day because it's that important. Hear, O Israel, your God is one. And you'd be like, wow, man. Deep thought knows this. Thanks for sharing that with us. So you're saying that we have one God? Okay, wow. That's not what he's saying. The compound God that is among you is one. Israel, Adonai, Elohim, Ehad. The Lord, the overseer, the watchman, the Elohim, which is a plural word, is one. Is one. He's Ehad. And you're to say it three times a day. Not four, not five, not once, not twice, three. Why? Father, Son, and Spirit. They're to say it three times a day. It was reinforced in their culture. 
They understood it. They didn't necessarily have a language for it, but they understood it. And these Sadducees deny it. They're saying there's no such thing. There's only one God. And Jesus is like, well, you know, God, you know him, right? Well, he and I are one. And they start tripping on that. So that's the second thing. <laughs> and then he says, they're, then he confronts their belief system. The question that I have is, didn't they just ask him, if you were the Christ, show us? They just asked him. Then they wanted to kill him. And he says, why do you want to kill me? He says, because you're merely a man and you make yourself God. So you have to understand what Jesus is addressing. He's addressing a belief system here. They're saying, you cannot be God because you are a man. That's impossible because that's how they saw things theologically. And he, he says to this to them, is it not written in your law that I say to you, you are God's? And if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, scripture cannot be broken. Say it with me. Scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who was consecrated and sent unto the world that I am blaspheming because I am, I, am, I, am son, I am the son of God? If I'm doing the works of my father, then believe me. But if I don't believe them, then believe in the works that I do, that you may understand that I am in the father and the father is in me. This is deep and very, very powerful. Pastors skip this all the time because they don't understand what's going on here. They don't, understand what the, they don't understand the context. This is a verse that's often skipped. This is a verse that's quoted by New Agers. So what Jesus say with me? What Jesus is not saying, he's not saying, I'm God, you're God, yabba dabba do, she's God, come one and come all. He's not saying we're all God. That is not what he's saying. He's pointing them to the existence of divine beings or eternal beings apart from God. Because you see, these guys don't believe in angels. They don't believe in, they don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. And so he quotes a verse. He quotes Psalm 82 which is insane. And this is what's crazy. It's because these guys, too, they don't believe in the book of Isaiah. <laughs> in Psalm 82 is cross-referenced two times with the book of Isaiah. So when he throws Psalm 82 at them, he knows that he's, that they're coming, he's coming at their, 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 their belief on Isaiah. Because <laughs> he uses a verse that's cross-referenced through Isaiah. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. And so there would be like, he knows they, they would begin to steam knowing what they were doing. He quotes Psalm 82, and it's a direct, and it was a book that they denied. He references the eternal world, the narrative of creation and the restoration of all things. That's what Psalm 82 does. Psalm 82 is, again, another scripture that's not understood because our paradigm is wrong. We have to understand things from God's perspective and not ours. Do you understand this? No? Half of you? I knew I was going to say it's going to get deep. Anybody? Come on, say it. It's going to get deep. Right. Do you like it? Anybody like deep stuff? Right. Okay. This is good. Right? They were expected to understand these things. God makes a reference to, Jesus makes a reference to Psalm 82, and it's a reference to the eternal world. That psalm is, an, is a reference directly to the eternal world to the system that of the fallen beings and to the judgment that is yet to come. He's making a reference to that psalm specifically. The structure of the eternal world, the state of, of, the, of ruling authorities in the eternal world, especially specifically over men, and he makes a reference of the judgment that will yet, yet to come. That's, that's what that psalm's saying. It says the Lord sits alone among, the Lord takes his place among the council. So what you have to understand is Jesus has a council. He has a council. They're not so much a council where he says, hey, is this a good idea? They're witnesses of heaven. So hopefully I can do this. We, 24 and 24 elders, anybody ever heard that? One person. Thank you, Charmaine. 
Yes, that's right. That's why you got an A on that Bible, the Bible exam. There's 24 elders in the book of Revelation. When I was in Bible school, which is a complete nonsense, they taught me, no one knows who the four and 20, four and 20 elders are. No one knows. We do know. They're angelic beings. We do know. We, we do understand that. It's called the court of heaven. It's the realm of heaven. What happens is, let me see what, how I was going to break this down because I feel like I'm going in a different direction, but let me come back to my notes and see which way I laid this out because I can go a lot of different ways on this, and I'm trying to, I, I, tried to, I prayed a lot because there's a lot of detail here. I'm going to try to give you the best that I can. I'm going to give it to you in a summary form. There's a lot to it. When I do, when I, when I do the, the inner healing and deliverance school, if I do that one, I'm going to open this up way more, but we're going to see where, where we can go here. Okay, say this with me. Jesus, I'm going, slide, I like, I'm going to make you comfortable here. Jesus is not eternal. Just let it happen. You're going to get, oh, I'm walking out of here right now. It's pastor speaking blasphemy. Say this, he's everlasting. Jesus is not eternal. He's everlasting. He comes from a realm beyond eternity. Does that blow your mind? Because that's who he is. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, in the beginning, created the realm of the eternity, of eternity. The everlasting God. This is deep stuff, people, but this is who your father is. The everlasting God creates a realm for himself, and he calls it heaven. This is his realm. Hmm? Come on. And he populates that realm with eternal beings. We would call them angels, but there's different, there's different beings there that are just more than angelos, right? They're different. They're, they're, I mean, we have living creatures. We have seraphim. We have cherubim, cherubim. There's a lot of things going on. God creates a world, and in this world, he populates it with eternal beings. Then he creates another realm called time and space. And, he, and into the world of time and space, he creates the earth. And he creates sons and daughters off the rip, like father, like son. Well, they're like father, like son. They need to have a realm of their own, so let's give them a realm of their own. They need to have rulership and autonomy like their father. I give them rulership and autonomy. They need to have the ability to create like their father. They have the ability to create. That was the command, go and create culture. Rule and subdue. Bring this world and reflect this world through my world. Create the culture of heaven on the earth. That was the mandate, the Genesis mandate the Edenic mandate upon the life of the son and the daughter. They were born as sons and daughters. In the eternal world, they're not, even though the Hebrew uses the word bena Elohim, right, which we oftentimes translate sons, it actually means offspring, right? It's an offspring, not necessarily in the family sense. Angels are not created in the family sense, and you see that through the limited interactions we have with them in Scripture. The, very, the interactions with them are very limited, but when we do see them, we see them operating in certain ways. This world... Right? So the eternal world was created to operate. So they say this one. You guys want to learn how heaven operates? I'm going to tell you right now. Yes. I'm going to tell you right now. All right, this, this side of the room is on point. I'm so, all right. The eternal world operates administratively and judicially. That's how heaven operates. It operates through administration and it operates through judicial. This world is to interact with that world but we are to interact with that world based on relationship. In other words, the angels serve the Lord judicially and they serve the Lord administratively. They do not serve him relationally. 
They never mention him as Yahweh. They never mention him as Jehovah. They never mention covenant names. They never use a covenant name of God ever in Scripture. The angels only use the, high, the, the, the capitalized version of Elohim, God of God's judge of judges. So when an angel speaks of God, they are always speaking of him in the, in the divine and supreme sense. They don't call him Father. Nowhere does an angel call God Father. Nowhere does Jesus converse and say, hey, these angels are your brother. We all have the same father. That doesn't happen because we're created different than the angels, lower than the angels with a power to ascend, create, and become. Angels cannot ascend, create, nor can they become. They're created as they are. An angel of mercy, what's his job? To minister what? Right. Angel of truth, what's his job? Right. The Lord diversifies. He takes segments of his nature and gives them to the angelic beings. He gives us his, person, his personhood. Which one gets the better deal? We do. We do. We get his personhood. They don't get his personhood. They get, they get aspects of his nature. They're ministering angels. Michael's a warrior. God's a warrior. It has been so from the beginning, Exodus 17. So what Michael gets draws from the warrior, the warrior nature of the father, um, Gabriel, the only two angels we really know, but we see, this, we see these in reference points other places in the scripture. Gabriel's a messenger. How many know Jesus is an evangelist? How many knows your father's a messenger? If you will hear the word of the Lord, he's a messenger. And so Gabriel draws from the messaging nature of, of the Lord. So this is what these angels are drawing from. So they're siloed in what they are. They cannot ascend. They are what they are. We can rise. We can transform. We can become that's why the relationship is necessary because that's what God desires to do with us, to take us from here to here, to grow you. That's why most of you, you want to grow. You don't want to be the, does anybody here want to be the same they were last year? You want to be the same person you were? And where does that come from, right? It, it's in all of us. None of us want to be the same, and it's because we have the nature of our Father to believe, belong, and become, to grow, to ascend, not into Godhead, but we are to rise to into the nature of Christ. We're to become more like Jesus, who's the prototype of the new creation. He's the one who mirrors this for us. So God creates eternity, populates it with these beings. He establishes a council around him. It's the court of heaven. Say with me. The Lord, is important, does not take counsel with angels. He takes counsel with himself. It's called the council of the Godhead. So in the divine world, the Lord is not going, hey, Gabriel, you think this is a good idea? He's not asking them. He's counseling with himself. It's the counsel of the Godhead. The father says, my children are lost. What shall we do? And I'll just give you just an example. It's a narrative. It's not you know, like, where'd you get, where's this verse? No, this is a storyline. So here's the counsel. Here's the counsel of salvation. Man is lost. And Jesus just goes, I'll go for them and I'll give my life for them to bring them back. And then the Holy Spirit says, I'll live with them and I'm going to empower them to live this new life. That's the counsel of the Godhead. The Father says, I want my children back. The Son says, I'll go. And the Holy Spirit says, I'll reinforce the sacrifice with power and life. I'll make it worth something. <laughs> Come on. That's the counsel of the Godhead. He's not sitting around with angels asking them to vote and asking them if it's a good idea. But we do see in Scripture that he takes counsel with man. Isn't that interesting? He takes a counsel with man. He sits down with Abraham. He says, what do I do here, Abraham? What do you think I should do here? You know, you see him counseling with him and, and making a deal. And the Lord even says in Isaiah, let us reason together. Come on, talk to me. 
Let's be reasonable about this. Let's you and I discuss this. You, you, because you see, the relationship with the angels is, admit, say it with me, the relationship with the angels is administrative and judicial. His relationship with us is interpersonal. They get an aspect of his nature. We get his personhood. So we relate to him in personhood. The way we activate heaven is when we understand the administrative nature of heaven and we understand the judicial law of heaven and how it works and we understand the law of the spirit which is by right of inheritance and we learn to enforce the law of the spirit. That's when heaven moves. That's when things change. That's when the divine world comes into the natural world and that's when we see power. And that's when we sink. Most Christians don't understand the administrative world. Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. But they don't tithe. And so they're not operating according to the administrative rule of that world. <gasps> I'm just telling you. It doesn't mean that God won't provide for you. He will. The promise over you, the promise of you, the inheritance packages is you're taking care of. But the, but the idea for you to prosper and succeed is you are invited to that, but that's not guaranteed. You, God's going to take care of you as his son or daughter just because he loves you and you're his. You're going to take care of you. You're going to have a place to stay. You're going to have food on your table. You're going to live hand to mouth. You know, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. But until you get dissatisfied with that and are willing to change and begin to align yourself with the administrative decrees of heaven... That is when heaven, when you, when you align the administration decrees and, the, and it flows. That's how this works. Then you have the law of the spirit, the judicial law, which the, which the devil is the antidikos. He's the accuser. He's the accuser. Accusing you of what? Most of the time it's issues in your past. It's pain, trauma, lies, disbeliefs that you carry, generational sins. I don't believe in that. That's perfectly fine. You don't have to believe in any of this. But what you don't deal with will deal with you. You can rest assured of that. And that's why Christians experience delays. That's why Christians experience denials. And that's why Christians experience destruction. Not because your father hasn't told you it's, you can have it, but because there's a legal right being enforced against you and you don't understand the law of the spirit and how to covenant break that. Just a thought. And therefore, heaven cannot flow because you don't understand the judicial system of heaven and you don't understand the administrative system of heaven. And we think God's just going to do it for me. Ah, I'm going to look right in the camera. God's just going to do it for me. No, he's not. No, he's not. You're born again. You're a Christian. You have an inheritance package. We all got an inheritance package. Put your hand on your heart. Say it with me. I got an inheritance portfolio that is mine in the name of Jesus. And you know what, his, you know what your inheritance portfolio is? His name. In Christ, you get his name. You, Jehovah saves. You're saved. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord heals you. Healing is the believer's inheritance, period. Period. It's yours. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to roll around on the floor. You don't have to beg for it. It belongs to you. You get his name. You get Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah Jireh means the Lord will provide. It doesn't mean the Lord will cause you to succeed. It means he'll provide. What does that mean? He'll take care of you. He's going to handle it all. And it's fine if you just want to live that kind of life. I, for me, don't want to live that kind of life. I want, the high, I, want to live, I want to go to the mountain. I want to go to the higher places. Anybody here want to go to the higher places? Yeah. Right? Abraham said, stay behind in the valley with the asses. The lad and I go to the mountain to worship. When you get tired of staying in the valley with the asses, then you decide you're going to go to the mountain where the higher things are. Most Christians stay in the valley with the asses. The stubborn, the know-it-alls, the wishful thinkers, the ones who think they got it all figured out and they know nothing. 
When you get tired of that and you want to pursue the higher things, then things begin to change. Then things begin to change. You have a covenant in his name, Jehovah Shalom. You have his peace. Shalom. That's why you can have, your life can be total chaos. You call on the Lord and Shalom comes. And you didn't do anything to, do, to earn that. He just gives you, Lord, give me peace. And he gives it to you. Right? Jehovah Nisi. He's your protector. No weapon formed against you will prosper. He's the banner over you. Touch not that one. Touch not that one. Lord, I put myself in a terrible mess. Don't worry. I'm going to deliver you. Boom. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? Come on. <laughs> this is your inheritance. This belongs to you merely as a believer. This is the Benny plan. This is what comes to you in, as in the family plan. But God challenges you to go to higher places. He calls you to higher places. And the way we get to higher places is by understanding how this works. We have to understand how this works. I am committed to this. I'm not committed to this because I have this knowledge of it. I have a com I'm committed to this because I understand what's, I've, I've seen it. And I'm still seeing it. And I know this to be true. It's absolutely true. And that's what leaves us in ignorance. So you have the judicial and the, and the administrative side of how that world operates. On earth as it is in heaven. That's great. Well, then if we want on earth as it is in heaven, we want heaven on earth. We want the flow of heaven in our life. We need to understand the administrative directives, and we need to understand the judicial, judicial counsel of that, of, that, of that world. And if we don't, we're going to be ignorant to it. The devil, got, the devil understands it. My people are destroyed for what? That's right. Something you don't know is what destroys you. Something you don't understand is what, un is what destroys you. Making it up and saying, well, God says it's like this, but I think it's more like this. No, listen, it's the way the Lord says. It's not, one of you is wrong, and it's not Jesus. I can tell you that. Right? Somebody's wrong, and Jesus is not. If it, between you and Jesus, Lord's like, some, one of us is wrong here, Kevin, and it's not me. It's not me. So you need to get off your page and get on my page. You need to get out of my, your thing and get over here in my thing. And you need to understand this. This is what lifestyle Christianity is all about. Kingdom lifestyle. I flow in the administrative rule of heaven. I flow in the judicial flow of heaven. And therefore, that kingdom activates. Why do I flow in that? Because I operate it in that according to relationship. I have a right. We come boldly before the throne. Before the throne. We don't come through an altar. We come to a throne. Oh, come to the altar. Wonderful song. Not textually correct, but wonderful song. We come to, we have, an, we have a throne of grace, spiritual power moving in love. That's what it is. Come before my throne and receive the power that is yours to deal with the circumstances that you are facing. That's what grace is. Spiritual power moving in love. Okay? Mercy is what is just, it's just favor. Come and receive the power that you need to deal with the things that you're dealing with and come and receive the favor that is yours because you're my child. Come and present yourself to me as a son or as a daughter that I might endow you with the things that are rightfully yours. It's the way it is. So God creates a family. He populates it with eternal beings. This is the, this is the eternal world. They're called, they're referenced as Elohim in a, with a little e. And Elohim means an eternal being, but the big letter Elohim means God of gods, right? Big story behind this. All right. Am I blowing you guys away too hard here this morning? Okay. I got a few fans, so I'm not looking at my fans. I'm looking at the other, the other people in the room. I don't want to take you too far because I could put it in another gear if you want me to. Yeah. Hmm. 
Should I do it, Lord? All right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. We are created by God to stand between two worlds. Man was always the arbiter between heaven and earth. Right? They saw angels. They saw the Lord walking with them in the cool of the day. God created man that heaven and earth would be one and that man would have the ability to stand between two worlds, to operate in the natural and flow in the spirit. Isn't that not what we have in Christ? That's what he gives to us. We not only have the opera- to operate in that power, we have the ability to see that world, experience that world, and understand that world. Dreams, visions, prophetic. We draw from that world. We don't know what we're doing, but Jesus does. You may nev- have never operated in that as a believer, but that doesn't mean that the right doesn't belong to you. Man was created that way. When man fell, he became separated from that. Man became locked in time and space. Right? So the worlds were separated. They were one. And it did ha- when did it happen? It happened at the flood. This is when all of the separation happened. What happens is, is God creates angels. This is going to help some of you. Anybody like spiritual warfare? You want to understand what spiritual warfare is all about? Yes. yes got one over here. Yeah. Yes. All right. So I'm going to do this the best I can in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Okay. Yes, I'm working. Let me calculate the time here because I don't want to leave you in, in outer space. <laughs> I have 15 minutes. All right. God creates man. He creates heaven. He populates, the, he populates heaven with angelic beings. He establishes a council around him to witness his judgments. They are the ones who say the Lord's decisions are altogether righteous and altogether just. So God creates a court, and in the court, He's surrounded by witnesses, the four and 20 elders. They are angelic beings that are in the court. You find it all through the scripture. Psalm 82 references God sitting in the council of his court. He takes his place. Daniel, the Lord sat in the court and the seats are, and everyone took their seat. God sits in the court. He establishes this. This is the way he established it. And from that world, he established principles, say it with me, layered hierarchy. So there are realms. This is what the Bible references. Thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, mights. The Bible references this. And so there was a rulership that was established in the spiritual realm. Man was, this world was intimately connected to that world. When man fell, those rulership dominions fell with him. That doesn't mean God's not in charge of heaven. He is. But the, but the atmospheric realms that are over the earth fell with man. Man gave them away. This is essentially the story. Adam had the power, and he handed it, he handed it off, right? Here, I don't need my house anymore. You can have it, you know? <laughs> and he, made, he, gave away, he gave away the farm. And when man fell, those realms became f- falling under the devil. What happens, what you see in the book of Genesis, this is going to get a deep teaching. I'm, man, I'm all over the place, but I'm trying to keep this. I'm, I, I, I want to share it. I really want to share it. Okay. So what happens in the book of Genesis, if you look at the narrative and what happens, and this all relates back to what's going on here, because Jesus is referring to them about the spiritual realm that he expected them to understand. He references Psalm 82 to these guys, which is about the heavenly court, which is about the demonic structure that is over the earth. That's all in that psalm, and about the apocalyptic judgment that he will bring upon these deities, these fallen beings that proclaim themselves to be deities. What happens is, is God, God, when man fell, the devil claimed legal right. Hmm? And he claimed legal right, and he literally ran roughshod over the earth and over the whole family of man. This is pre-flood. And that's why you see all of this chaos going on in the book of Genesis. Because as soon as man fell, the demonic fallen angels came in and exerted their control immediately. They corrupted human DNA. They, they, the, the whole world was, under the, was just completely corrupted. 
And the Lord looked at this and said, everything is evil. And so he extracted, because he loves man, he could have just did a whole way with the whole thing there. But he's like, no, nah, I want a family, man. I started, he's just Jesus. He's like, I started this thing out to get a family. You know, I want a family. And so he took Noah and, and, and his family, and he put them in an ark, and he flooded the earth. And when he flooded the earth, he separated the realms. That's why there's all this cataclysm going on um, with the flood of Noah. And there's a lot of stuff, deep stuff to that. But basically what God was doing is he was separating that these angels had this ability to move in and out of, out of the dimension of time because heaven and earth were one. That's why you see all this weird stuff in the book of Genesis is because the dimensions were joined, right? And so God shifted the dimensions and that allowed the, the space to kind of be between man and the eternal world. You with me? And so what happens is, is that the devils run roughshod over the earth. They corrupt the DNA. God floods the earth, reestablishes, his, reestablishes uh, man on the earth. Man begins to progress. Man be builds a tower of Babel. He builds a tower of Babel. There, man's proclaiming himself to be God. There's all this chaos going on. These demons have legal authority over mankind. The Bible says in the book of 1 John, the whole world lays under the sway of the evil one. The only one people in, in the planet that are broken free of demonic power is the Christian. You don't have to see the devil show up in the room with horns and going, ooh, here I am, in order to be under demonic power. You're under demonic legal authority. They own you without Christ. You, they do. They own you. You say, I don't believe that. Well, when you die, it'll become very clear to you who owns you. It'll be very clear who, takes, who, who claims you as theirs. You belong to Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The Holy Spirit's the seal of our possession, the down payment of our redemption, Ephesians. So the seal of our redemption is the Holy Spirit. In other words, we have FedExed. <laughs> as soon as you die, FedEx package, boom, oh, yeah, here's a label. Shoot you down a shoot, you're off you go. I don't know how it works, but, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. These devils came back, and what God does after the flood is he establishes a system of law, and he subjugates himself to the law. And if you look at, I think it's Deuteronomy 32. It's Deuteronomy 32. It's Acts 17. There's several places in the scripture where God divides the nations and what God does in this time is you can almost imagine this. It's almost like if you see the book of Job where the devil is making accusations before the Father. These demons are making accusations before the heavenly court. This isn't revealed in Scripture, but it's revealed in the narrative of Scripture. We can understand it through the narrative of Scripture. And that they were at, we see a system of law being put in place after the flood that didn't exist before. And it wasn't just Mosaic law from, through Moses. It became a spiritual law. There was a difference. And God divided the nations, sent them forth, and he allotted. Deuteronomy says this specifically, and this is what Psalm 82 is referencing too. He allotted to these, to these demons. Each one got a different people group. That's why we see principalities and powers over nations. Each one was assigned a different people group. Satan obviously being over all of them. This is when Daniel's talking about, I had to fight my way through the prince of Persia. That people group, the demonic power over that people group. And when, when, when Prince of Persia's time is done, the, the Prince of Greece and his people group are going to come. This is why you see all of these different things. And you see these gods over these different places. And when you see in the, New, in the Old Testament, you see that it's all territorial. A lot of the deities, it's all territorial. Because pe these deities, these demons were associated with certain people groups. And God allotted them to the nations, but he had a plan of redemption. He said, look, this is the way it's going to go down. Each one of you is going to get an assignment. You have the legal right. He wasn't just giving it away. They had the right to do so. And they were demanding their right. I have a right. That's the devil. I have a right. That's the devil. And they're demanding their right. And so God gives it to him. And he says, you can have all the nations, and I'm taking one. All of the people groups are yours, but I get one nation from myself. And God, through one nation 
set about, and is still doing it, to reclaim all nations unto himself, right? Now that nation, we are his holy what? Nation. It's through the church. It was Israel. Their job was to repopulate. Doesn't mean that Israel's done. Doesn't mean God's dismissed Israel and the church has replaced Israel. I'm not saying any of that. But what I'm saying is that the redemptive plan does no longer flows through Israel. It flows through the church. Yeah? And that we are a holy nation. Right? We are not just living in Miami. We, as a people, are a holy nation. And it is through the holy nation that God's desire is to reclaim all nations to himself which is exactly what revelations say, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God. And what God is telling these spirits here is he's, well, in Psalm 82, he's, he's bringing them forward and he's telling them, all you do is injustice. So in other words, when these demonic powers came over these people groups, they began to embody themselves. Yeah? That's why these nations have gods. They began to embody themselves. Say, what's America's God? What's easy? Look in the mirror. Self is America's God. You know, we don't have a statue necessarily, but that's why you see a lot of these people, they have these, they have these statues. These spirits began to embody themselves and began to teach these people how to worship, all this other stuff. That's what, be, that's what ended up happening. God divides that, and now he sets, this, and now he sets forth um, this reclamation plan through his church and through his people. And this all operates according to the law of the spirit. God subjugates himself to his own law. He does. That's why Jesus died because he subjugated himself to his own law. He fulfilled the law because he subjugated himself to his own law. And he operated according to a higher law. See, the devil thought that he had Adam bound because he had Adam's bloodline. And if you got your bloodline, iniquity flows through Adam's blood. It doesn't flow through Adam's action. The iniquity entered Adam's blood through Adam's action, and that, and that blood flows to all of us. So all of us are born in iniquity. So Jesus comes, subjugates himself to his own law, fulfills the law, and then enacts a higher law. And he gives his blood for us that we could be born again, not born of Adam, but born, uh, born of Adam or the blood of Adam, but of the blood of who? Who are we born of? The blood of who? Jesus. So our job as Christians enacted is to reclaim the nations for Jesus, is to reclaim the ethnos for Jesus. That's the mission. That, it's Matthew 28. Somebody know Matthew 28? What's the first words? G-O, it's what? Where? Where did he tell him to go? Right. You get the picture? You see, you, see, you see this? You see what's going on here? This is how the scripture harmonizes is what God's actually wanting us to do. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation, every ethnos, every ethnic person. Reclaim them for me. Reclaim them for me. And so it's not even enough to come back to Christ. We come to Jesus. There must be a deliverance and a healing process, Christians. Some of you come from really baggaged backgrounds. And your family have binding rights to ancestral gods. Some of you come from Masonic backgrounds. Some of you come from Jew religious backgrounds. We're in Miami, so dare we say it, Santeria, you know. We come from, you, some of you come from Haiti. There's voodoo. There's all kinds of crazy stuff. And you wonder why, as a Christian, there's a dysfunction with you because Jesus owns your spirit, but those are unclaimed territories of your life that the devil owns. You have the law of the spirit that is enacted through repentance that you need to learn to understand how to operate in that. Am I making sense? So this is how this kingdom works. And this is exactly what blew my mind when I was looking at this and just deeply studying it because I know Psalm 82 
And when I started looking at it, I'm like, this is what the Lord was expecting these guys to know. This is what he, he's quoting Psalm 82. He could have quoted anything, but he quotes Psalm 82. And it's exactly that. He's talking about the eternal world, the, judge, the, the, the judicial system of God, the fallenness and the administration that is over mankind, and then the judgment that will come. And so what is this, what's the takeaway from this, right? What's the takeaway? There is an eternal world. There is an afterlife, right? God is real. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus is God. You will live eternally. You will live, it depends on who, whose life your life belongs to. There is a resurrection. There is a judgment. There is. It's an inconvenient truth, but there will be a judgment. Christians will be judged upon their life and how they lived it to the Lord. They will not be judged under condemnation. They will be judged according to reward. We go before the seat of reward. The unbeliever goes before the seat of judgment, of condemnation. We do not go before that. Although our lives will be examined, they will not be examined on the basis of condemnation. Romans 8, there is therefore now what? No you will not be condemned. There is no condemnation. It's based upon what did you do for Jesus? What did you do with Jesus, for Jesus, and what did you do with yourself? That's going to be the dividing point, and God will reward you based upon that action. And it's really obedience to the things that God's called you, but that's another day, another story. And so all of these things are true. There is a judicial system of heaven. There is an administrative system of heaven. And if we learn these things, we can operate in these things in a deeper and more profound truth. So I struggled a lot with this message. It took me two weeks to put it together. So I'm, hopefully I didn't like completely butcher it. I knew there was going to be a lot of questions because I couldn't, I couldn't answer all of the questions um, through this. But there, there is. The Sadducees feigned ignorance and they exalted their arrogance. Mankind cannot feign ignorance. Romans says that, that man is without excuse. There, is no, there will be no excuse when we stand before Jesus if we've never given our life to him especially in the United States of America where the gospel is bombarded. And in most parts of the world, the gospel is bombarded. There wouldn't be no ignorance. The Sadducees acted like they were stupid, and they weren't. They hid in their arrogance. They got angry when truth came to them, and they wanted to kill Jesus, which is to say they wanted to remove his name and any associations with him from their culture. Huh? Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Huh? Yeah? Get Jesus out of our culture. Stop talking about Jesus. Stop talking about Jesus. We don't want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> I speak Jesus. Let's go. <laughs> so for you, Christian, the challenge is to be affirmed in your faith, to know that you're saved. Jesus said, you're in my hand, and I'm not going to let you go. Amen. To understand that. The deeper understanding is to understand the dysfunction that's in your life is not because God doesn't love you. It's not because God hasn't promised you. He loves you, and he has promised you. There is a judicial understanding that you need to understand. There is a reason for what is going on in your life and why things are the way they are. And our job is to understand that. And our job is to grow in that. Or not. You can stay the same. You're loved. You're going to heaven. But if you like bondage, then stay in bondage. If you like not being able to move forward when God is telling you you can move forward. Anybody like that? You know what I'm talking about? You know God's told you something, but you just can't get there? And it's been years and years and years and years and years and years, and you just don't understand why that is? Well, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God, maybe it's just a matter of timing. I would say it's none of that. I would say it's a judicial matter of, of heaven that you don't understand. When, why doesn't God bless me? Well, operate in the administrative flow of heaven. Do what he says. You're here this morning, and you know what you're operating in? The administrative flow of heaven. Amen. And so this is like pizza. Even if it's not so good, it's still, gonna be, it's still pretty good. You know what I mean? He's going to bless you because you're here, and the Bible, the administrative is, is it come, it, not forsake the assemblies of yourselves together. 
you come together, you're operating in the administrative flow of heaven, and you will be blessed because you're operating in that. Amen? Amen. 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 All right. So I want to just invite everybody out there and anybody here that has never given their life to Christ, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you. Everyone is born with a sin problem. We're born without Jesus, and we need to be born again. The Bible commands us to be born again. Without being born again, we cannot see the kingdom of heaven. We're not even aware that it exists. Without being born again, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says you must be born again. Not born in knowledge, but born in transformation. You don't have to understand it. Romans says believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. It never tells you to believe with your, with your mind. Never even, never even tells you you have to understand what all of this means. It just simply says you need to believe that you're lost, that you're hopeless, that you're helpless, that Christ died for you, gave his life to you, for you, and if you give your life to him, he will make his life known in your life. That's all you need to know. You don't have to understand it. You just need to know it. And if you believe in your heart, you say, well, why do we have to pray? The Bible says, open your mouth. The reason we pray is Jesus says, if you will confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. But if you will not confess me before men, you will, and if you will deny me before men, you all will deny before my Father. We live in a culture where everybody's bold. Everybody's got a new flag because of their boldness. We got parades declaring boldness. It's time for the Christians to come out of the closet. And the Bible actually says there's no such thing as a closet Christian. You have to stand up and count and be numbered. And so we're going to ask you to pray. We're going to ask anybody here who's never given their life to Christ. We're going to pray. We're going to pray together as a family here at Elevate. We want to pray with you as well as home. We're just going to say a prayer just by faith and just say it with me. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Savior and I need a Savior. So I open my heart to you, Jesus, and I ask you to come inside. I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to restore me. I ask you to repurpose my life. I may not understand these things, but I choose to believe it. All that I am, I give to you. And all that you are, I receive as mine. From this day forward, I choose to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, if you need prayer, they've got a prayer team available for you over here as well. I'm going to bless you one more time, and then we'll just dismiss the service. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you in every way. And may the Lord give you peace. And may you forever live within his favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. <laughs>